21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. My name is Ashwin Krishnaswamy. I'm the founder of Forge and Oklahoma Smokes. And I have uh, been on a journey of entrepreneurship basically since 2013. I started off first working on a consumer social product. So it was a link sharing tool that allowed for, uh, think of it like a Google chat um, on any web page. So it was kind of built into your browser, gave you an easy, seamless way to kind of share and discuss links. And I worked on this product from 2013 to 2016. You know, initially just solving a problem of my own, which I think is always a great way to think about businesses and start businesses. This was my first foray into, you know, into the world of building products. And so was kind of learning as I was going and just, you know, talking to people and finding resources on the internet. I worked on that product for about three years. And I think uh, one of the most important lessons that came out of that is you can have a great product with real with a really loyal following, but distribution and marketing is one of the most important things. That's the kind of lifeblood of a business. And I would say for that business, I spent far too much time being a perfectionist about product and being very deterministic about the product that I should be building rather than rapidly iterating, putting product out in the market, thinking about distribution. I was very uh, kind of adamant and dogmatic about how that product should be built. And so I think while we had some very small success in terms of the acclaim that we got and the users that we got, it was still, uh, there were a lot of lessons kind of baked into that. By the end of that experience, I knew that I wanted to stay in this world of kind of building startups and solving problems and asking interesting questions. After that, uh, myself and both of my partners, we joined a, another company uh, based here in New York that was kind of a predecessor to Clubhouse. People who don't know, Clubhouse is basically an audio social network. And so this was the kind of first iteration of that, a different company. And you know, again, that was another consumer social product. And that company also ran into its own issues and challenges from a distribution and marketing standpoint. Again, another lesson that you can have a really compelling product with a compelling use case, but you need to figure out sustainable ways to, uh, to grow and acquire users. Um, so this takes us to about 2017. My partners and I had basically become this really good team of kind of product designers, UI, UX designers, and developers, and you know, managing all these other pieces that you need to get a startup up and running. Um, we knew we wanted to work together on more concepts, but didn't have that concept. And so we started an agency and uh, that agency is called Forge. And we thought our you know, initial market was gonna be helping build consumer software, um, but pretty, uh, you know, around that time, direct-to-consumer businesses were becoming very hot in New York, um, especially based off of the success that, you know, Casper was probably the first big one in New York. And so uh, the kind of market in New York shifted from people building consumer 
social technology products to building direct-to-consumer brands. And so we started getting inbound, uh, hey, do you guys do branding and packaging and Shopify design and development? And so pretty much overnight, starting in 2018, we started working with those clients, had a few successes there, and then that just referred more work. So basically from 20, you know, call it 2018 to now, we've been working exclusively in the space of direct-to-consumer businesses, uh, learning kind of what works, what doesn't work, businesses that we really like, businesses that I don't really like. Um, and I've also launched a direct-to-consumer business of my own. Um, and I also think there's, you know, some misnomers in thinking about businesses as just direct-to-consumer businesses. But so far, that's kind of been my journey. Direct-to-consumer basically means um, you are selling uh, your product directly to the consumer through a website. So you cut out the middleman. The traditional uh, path, you know, call it 20, 25 years ago, was you create a product, you then find a distributor, the distributor then sells the product to retailers, the retailers then sell a product to customers. So you have basically two steps in between you and a customer, a distributor and a retailer. And I think that made that was a really kind of challenging path to test your product. It's super capital intensive. You have to have the right connections and you're just further divorced from the consumer and what their what kind of insights you can glean from them. You know, whereas with direct to consumer, you create a product, you set up a, a Shopify site or, or, or whatever you know, platform you want to use, and you can sell immediately to customers and you have a direct connection to them. You can start speaking to them immediately and you can learn and kind of iterate on your product and messaging very quickly in a way that you couldn't do that 25 years ago. There are categories that work really well for direct-to-consumer and there are categories that are more challenging. So for example, uh, food and beverage, I think are challenging categories to go direct to consumer. And, uh, you know, take, let's take an example more specifically. Um, there is a uh, company that, that, that kind of sells uh, a kind of oatmeal package, but it needs to be refrigerated. And so the product itself, when you think about it on store shelves, maybe each one of these packets is $3. The consumer is not going to pay $10 for just one single serving of, of refrigerated oatmeal. Uh, so as a result, when you're selling direct to consumer, um, you have to think about, okay, we need to sell enough in bulk where, you know, I need the average order value of call it 60 bucks here, because to acquire that customer off of Facebook ads or Instagram ads, it's going to be like, anywhere from 30 to 70 bucks to acquire that customer. And typically these days on the high end of that. So you can't acquire a customer for $70 and then sell them a product for $10. So you need to sell more volume of this product. But the second issue that you run into, especially for that type of food product is uh, shipping and refrigeration. You know, if the product needs to be kept cold, you need a interesting kind of shipper that has refrigerant in it, that has, you know, all these things that, that add to the cost of the product. So the end customer not is not only paying the cost of the product, but they're also being burdened by the shipping cost. And ultimately for food products, what is really important to the consumer is taste of the product, which they cannot get from a website. Uh, you can have videos, you can have testimonials, but there's a reason why you know, food products in Whole Foods or in Costco, uh, they do samplings there because the sampling is the most important part. People want to taste what this food tastes like and conversion rates on sampling are like 30%. Uh, so I think 
food products are really hard on e-commerce unless you already have an established base from the retail standpoint, or you think about this omni-channel strategy. Um, beverage products are really hard just because they weigh a lot, which means shipping is expensive. And so if you're selling $2 canned water, canned kombucha, you have to sell in a six pack or a 12 pack and it makes shipping incredibly expensive. Um, uh, you know, another product that I think is just a little bit challenging, but you can build a big business around it uh, is apparel. Um, apparel, again, one of the biggest questions is around uh, fit and sizing, and that varies from person to person so much. And so you see with a lot of apparel brands that they have a pretty high return rate. And when you have returned product, it's, you know, can you resell it? Does it go to waste? And so I think there's just a lot of challenges with an apparel business. Um, so those are some of the categories that I've seen to be challenging from a direct-to-consumer business. Businesses that do really well from a direct-to-consumer standpoint is, uh, you know, high average order value products. So any type of electronics, you know, call it headphones or call it a espresso maker or, you know, a, a, a tea kettle. Um, uh, you know, products that are shelf stable, that are fairly light. Um, you know, I think that those are some good attributes of, of kind of direct to consumer, direct to consumer products. Question that a lot of direct to consumer brands have to kind of ask themselves, uh, you know, today it's really easy to launch a direct to consumer business as a solo founder or with one partner. Um, a lot of the initial things that you need done, whether it's branding, packaging, you can contract out to different agencies and people. The next question is, okay, when do you make your first full-time hire? Do you think about it as full-time hire, part-time hire versus contractors? And I think this is probably gonna vary from business to business, but you know, I know a brand that has done, that got to doing about $10 million in annual revenue before they hired a single full-time employee. Um, and when I was talking to this, this brand about their hiring strategy, I was kind of saying, hey, you've grown quite well uh, over the past few years. Um, when are you thinking about bringing on full-time employees? And their response was, you know, I have, I have all of these uh, different areas of my business. So I have performance marketing. So someone to run Facebook ads and Instagram ads. I have a needs for SEO. So I need a really good SEO person. Um, I need to do email marketing. So I need a really good email marketer. Um, I need to do SMS marketing. So I need a really good SMS marketer. I need uh, to constantly iterate and launch new products on my website. So I need a good website kind of designer and developer. Um, to find a full-time employee. Uh, and, and so the other interesting piece that he said is not each one of these roles, they are not full-time roles of 40 hours a week. You don't need someone to do email marketing for 40 hours a week, but you do need someone to do it for two or three hours a week. And that tends to be the case across all of these roles until you've reached a certain level of scale. And so he was like, I don't want to hire seven different people who have expertise in these areas. I don't want to hire one person who's a head of marketing because on a tactical level, they're probably not going to be able to execute on email marketing, SMS marketing, all of these things really well. And so what I'd rather do is find agencies and contractors who are really specialized deep within a field. So an email agency, a SEO agency, a web design and development agency, and basically keep them on retainer for certain hours a month. And I can get to some 
great level of scale without having the burden of a full-time employee. So it turns out to be more effective for your business. Uh, you know, you also don't have, you know, all, all of the other burdens of full-time employee, you know, on, on overhead and office space and health insurance and all these other things that you may need to be may need to provide. Um, and it's funny that the the first full-time employee that this brand hired was someone to just manage all of the agencies because the owner of this business said, hey, I want to take a step back and not be involved in the day-to-day -day operations of all this and think more strategically and long-term about my business. Um, so, you know, that's a unique, so, so I think that thought or strategy needs to more, um, more brands and companies, especially if you're just going D to C, need to adopt that mindset. And I think why he was adopting this mindset, aside from the fact that it, you know, it, it kind of logically makes sense, um, he'd also bootstrapped the business. And so when you don't have this influx of capital where you have $2 million on your balance sheet and investors are saying, hey, what are you doing with it? The natural response to have $2 million in the bank account is, hey, maybe I should hire three or four people who can help me out with all of these things. And I've seen a lot of companies make, make those hiring decisions where they hire a social media manager, but they're doing a million dollars in revenue a year. And it's just like, you're paying this person a full-time you know, uh, full-time salary to just be creating content on Instagram and TikTok and they don't do anything else. That's not a 40 hour per week job and there's smarter ways to allocate this capital. Um, so I think a, a lot more brands can make use of contractors and freelancers and agencies and finding the right people rather than getting, you know, too early on hiring, uh, hiring individuals full-time. I'm never too dogmatic about the technology that people use. Um, I think what is, and I think people get too caught up in that. They say, should I use Trello or ClickUp or Asana or Notion? And how should I set this up? And I think what is more important is, number one, what are your KPIs? What are your goals? What do you need to be doing on a consistent daily basis to move this business forward? Those are the fundamental two questions. Next, you know, if you want to manage that in an Excel spreadsheet, you could build a, a billion dollar business from an Excel spreadsheet. And you can also burn $5 million a year using ClickUp and using all these tools. So it's less about the tool and more about your goals and framework. And then you just need a really kind of flexible, easy solution where we're saying, okay, every day, every week, every month, we are consistent about these tasks that will get us to our outcome. Yeah, so, so I would say this ideology of MVP is really applicable to uh, software businesses. Um, you know, I, I think in software businesses, you have basically consumer facing software and then you have kind of enterprise software. And I think when you think about MVPs, that's really important on the enterprise level is understanding what is the problem that we're solving and how do we solve it? Even if the interface looks kind of crappy, is it solving enough of a pain point that people are going to use it? Then we can make the interface better and add new features and, uh, you know, keep developing from there. Um, from a consumer facing software standpoint, you know, yes, I understand the idea of MVP, but I also think the bar today in 2022 and, and beyond 
for consumer experiences, if you're going to make a new email app, for example, needs to meet such a high threshold. Uh, you know, there's an app called Superhuman, which is an email app. They have been rolling out in beta for the past few years, but it's been in development for six or seven years now. In, in 2020, you could not launch a new email app that's an MVP. You know, that's like bare bones features with bare bone interface because the threshold for the current baseline, it's so good, you have to be beyond so good. Um, so, so I take the MVP on the consumer software side with a grain of salt. I think it's a really important framework for the enterprise, uh, for enterprise software. Um, and then how I think about it with direct-to-consumer products. I mean, I think products are a bit different. Uh, say you are making, um, you know, say, say you're making... Say you're making cigarettes, you know, for, for our example, uh, we've launched a brand that's a nicotine and tobacco free cigarette alternative. Um, we are, you know, the, the MVP of that is, you know, you, you can't hand roll it and put it in a plastic bag and mail yeah, that sure. to, consu to consumers. Um, I think one way to think about MVP here is, hey, d is the hypothesis right that a nicotine and tobacco-free cigarette alternative will resonate with consumers? And then number two, is it efficacious, right? Is there efficacy in that product for cigarette smokers? And you want to get to that answer pretty quickly. And so I would say it's more about getting answers quickly rather than the minimum product. And so, okay, if the minimum product is the cigarette, okay, let's get a thousand of these cigarettes and let's just sample with cigarette smokers. You know, let's get a pool of 50 cigarette smokers and give the product to them and get their feedback. We can do that before we ever launch a website and sell mm -hmm. the product product externally. Um, but it's, you know, th there's, that's how I would apply the concept. It's not so much what, because you don't really have this concept of features, you know? Um, the other way to think about this or the other mistake that I've seen from some uh, early stage consumer brands is that when they launch, they want to launch with four or five different products. You know, they, they say, hey, our hero product is going to be a men's hair wash. And that's really unique for these reasons. But we want to launch these three other products alongside that. And I think that can sometimes be a mistake because you should be able to create a hero product that gets you to several million dollars in revenue before you ever launch another product, if that initial product is good enough. And so just making sure that you stay like minimal in terms of what is like the minimum product that we need to kind of, you know, test this market or attract some, some consumer. And uh, do you need to launch in your own country or can you launch now we are going to the distribution topic? So is it is it necessary for you to launch on a micro level or? You know, my, my, answer, my response to that is you should launch in a place where you can learn really quickly. You oh. know, how quickly can you get these answers? So, for example, if we launched Oklahoma Smokes and we said, you know, uh, the, the Europe has a higher, uh, probably a country by country, has a higher smoking rate than the U.S., you know. It, in an ideal world, we'd probably launch in maybe France and then maybe Australia, you know, um, where cigarettes are 25 bucks in Australia and everyone's asking us for the product. The or challenge UK. there is, or UK, or UK. The challenge is you find a distributor in UK or France, you send them the product, but we're based here in New York. 
we have no boots on the ground or insight into that market, that consumer. You know, in France, I, what kind of marketing do we need to resonate? How do you even speak about the product? We don't, we're not native with the language. Uh, you get into these stores and you have no data or customer consumer insight. Uh, so I think you end up moving a lot more slowly. Whereas here, when we're in the US, you know, in our backyard, we can go and sample people outside. We can get into smoke shops. I can visit the smoke shops every day, understand what product's moving, how it's not moving. I can think, I can place it in different places in the store. Um, so you want to launch in a place where you can learn as quickly as possible. And that on a retail level tends to be in your own backyard on an online level tends to be kind of in your own country. And if you are in your own country, what kind of marketing do you, do you use? Are you still in Facebook uh, channel or what, what kind of social media or is it uh, direct sales? Or... Yeah, f Facebook, um, the whole playbook for direct-to-consumer brands from probably 2014 to 2019 was Facebook arbitrage. Ads were really cheap on Facebook, so you could acquire a customer for five to ten dollars and wow. sell them a thirty-dollar product. And then, you, if you put in a million dollars into that, you'll get three million dollars out. And so that's a that's an engine where you could scale a company really quickly. Um, every brand started to do that, and then classic supply and demand. You know, the costs started rising on Facebook. Facebook has also made some changes in terms of how they track customers. And so it's not as profitable as it once was, and it's not as effective as it once was. So now it's 70 bucks to acquire a customer and the data, it's a little bit unclear. So now all of these brands that used Facebook and Instagram as their playbook are now looking for different channels to acquire customers. And so a couple of places that are really interesting now, uh, TikTok, both from organic content creation, as well as an ad side, uh, investing in SEO. But then a lot of brands are also realizing there's this reckoning moment where direct to, like, we can't think of ourselves as a direct-to-consumer brand. We need to think of ourselves as we create a product that needs to get to consumers in every efficient channel as possible. So that's being omni-channels, being online and being in retail, you know, going through wholesalers, uh, partnering with other brands. Um, and that's the kind of, kind of broad-based reckoning that's happening in D2C right now. With Oklahoma Smokes, um, you know, a, a couple of things from the product standpoint, you know, it's a nicotine tobacco-free cigarette alternative for smokers who are looking to quit. Um, you know, one of those things I said was was really important is kind of your distribution and marketing. And, um, you know, that's a lesson that I learned kind of early on here. Here, our messaging, the way that we talk about the product is was really important to us. You know, functionally, it's a CBD cigarette, so it's made with hemp flour. But we do not go out there into the market and say, hey, we have a CBD cigarette. And I think this is a problem that a lot of brands make is that they speak very literally about what their product is. But you have to put yourself in the shoes of a consumer. Why would a consumer care to stop and understand and think about this? What kind of pain or problem are you solving for them? And so when we talk about our product, we say, hey, this is an alternative smoke for cigarette smokers who are looking to quit. It is nicotine and tobacco free. It's also made with hemp flour. Here's why that matters. You know, that that's the kind of structure of it is kind of identifying the pain or problem and then presenting your solution rather than just saying, hey, here's what I have. 
Um, and so from a messaging standpoint, we're really intentional about that piece of it. Um, from a uh, distribution standpoint, you know, we've been kind of direct to consumer the past year to mainly test this message, test the product, test the audience, get a deeper understanding of who they are and why they buy the product. Now armed with those insights, we're kind of aggressively getting into retail because we understand, hey, you can't rely on direct to consumer, you can't rely on retail, and you need to think of it more like a, um, you know, it, when you make investments, you don't put all of your money into one stock. You put them into different stocks, into different sectors, so that if one sector or one stock collapses, you you're you're not kind of out. Um, so from our standpoint, if for whatever reason, if there was some regulation that says, hey, we can't allow payment processing of CBD companies, that could destroy the online business overnight. And if you don't have a retail or another channel to support that, you could kind of be knocked out. So I think diversification of channels is, is really important. Um, you know, and then uh, one of the challenges or kind of speaking to the direct consumer challenge of acquiring customers, we never had the benefit of being able to advertise our product online from a paid advertising standpoint, uh, because it is a, it's still a smoking product, even though it's helped designed around smoking cessation. And it is a CBD product, both of which are kind of regulated on these platforms. So we couldn't run Facebook ads or Instagram ads. So from day one, we had to explore these different channels of how to acquire customers. And so we were, as a, from a brand standpoint, relatively early on on TikTok and have had great success there from like or, organic content that we create from user-generated content that has driven a lot of sales for us. That's been a huge channel for us. Um, and then, you know, we've made investments in, in SEO, in email marketing, in just being more creative from a retail sampling standpoint and getting out there in front of customers. Um, and I think that is also an important and overlooked point. Every company day one is asking them que themselves questions. How does this scale? How does this scale? How do I get to scale? And I think that an important point is, you know, in your first few years of business, you don't need to be worrying about scale. You need to be worrying about finding things that are effective, mm -hmm. getting your product to a small audience. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, think, having this conversation with my co-founder the other day, I was, was saying, hey, we should get into this rhythm of what if we call five stores every day that would be good for carrying our product? And say you have a, uh, you know, a 10% hit rate. That's every couple of days, you're going to get one store for reaching out to 10 people. Um, but look on a time horizon of a year, you know, how many people did you reach out to and how many new stores do you have? Okay, you have 50 or 100 new stores. That's great. That's 100 new stores that you didn't have day one. But everyone starting off is saying, how do I get into 1,000 stores tomorrow? And I, I just don't think that's the right approach because you can also get into 1,000 stores and then realize, hey, I'm in 1,000 stores. My product's not selling because I haven't merchandised it properly because I didn't test enough properly. And so being able to move slowly is actually a benefit to you because you can kind of just learn quickly and iterate on the fly. Um, so those are kind of some of the, the kind of lessons and applications that, that, that we're thinking about for, for this business. For anyone who's interested in, you know, kind of learning more, or talking about direct-to-consumer businesses, how to grow them, just generally entrepreneurship in general, or specifics of TikTok, uh, you can find me on 
Twitter at Schwinnabago. Um, it's like Schwinnabago. Uh, and then you can also find, um, you know, if you're a smoker of any sort, uh, Oklahoma Smokes. It's, uh, you know, www.itsoklahomas.com. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.